You are listening to PG Radio, broadcasting from Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. Welcome to Psychoanal Literature, a podcast about psychoanalysis, literature, and all that lies in between. Each episode, we deliver an interview with a prominent culture of figure who brings psychoanalysis to bear in contemporary culture to find out why they think psychoanalysis matters today. I'm Dr. Yael Segalowitz. And I am Professor Amelaine Maschilein. Join us. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are very excited to have with us somebody whose writing we've admired for a long time, Jane Gallup, who is, of course, very famous for bringing together psychoanalysis and feminism already way back, but who continues to do very interesting things and who just keeps on returning to psychoanalysis. And so we both loved Jane's most recent book, which brings very new questions to the table, the questions of aging, the questions of disability. And so we're really, really happy to have this conversation. Jane, welcome. Our first question, Jane, as you saw, or as you probably heard in the other podcasts, is always... Yeah, why psychoanalysis now? Do you feel that psychoanalysis is returning at the moment, that, that there is kind of re-emergence? Okay, that's a big question. I think that I, my response to that question feels like it's in a very different place than where the question comes from. First of all, in the worlds that I operate in, there is largely hostility toward or disinterest toward psychoanalysis. So I, I do not have a sense of, oh, psychoanalysis now, I'm, I'm not going to give you a cultural, and I'm, this um, may be the United States. I know that the United States scholars, particularly, you know, feminist queer scholars are less interested in psychoanalysis than either in Israel or in Belgium. So that's, that, that feels like a big difference. I actually stopped teaching psychoanalysis pretty long time ago, probably about 15, 20 years ago. I taught it in the 80s, I taught it in the 90s, and then there were just like, there was no student interest. Students were like, and, and I just stopped doing it. And I also pretty much stopped writing about it because it produced too much hostility or disinterest. And I feel like I, feel like I wasn't even engaging with anyone. So why psychoanalysis now? I can only give you a really personal answer, which is that I started working on this project at the intersection of sexuality and aging and disability. I didn't think I was going to be talking about psychoanalysis. I thought I was going to be talking about critical aging studies and crip theory and all of this stuff, which, you know, feels very important, contemporary in a larger scene. And the idea of castration, I couldn't get rid of it. It just kept coming up. As somebody who spent a lot of time thinking about psychoanalysis for a good 25 years, it's still there in the way that I think, but not necessarily in the way that I write and talk because of the question of audience. But I felt like I couldn't write about what I was writing about without writing about castration. And I was worried about it. I felt like it would turn off my audience, that people would just hate it. I fell into it against my will. I fell into writing again about castration and the phallus and psychoanalysis, not because I wanted to, but because I just didn't see any other way of talking about the material I was finding and what I was looking about. The word phallus was originally going to be in the title of this book. I was going to call it Queer Temporalities of the Phallus. And I was so worried 
that no one would ever read the book that a friend of mine suggested I put it in the subtitle so that at least it wouldn't like be so upfront. So I moved it to the subtitle. I'm not sure that solved any problems, but it, it made me feel a little bit more comfortable and it had this, you know, much more prosaic title of sexuality, disability, and aging, which is, which is what the book is about, but seemed less like live. Cause I really felt like what I had discovered the level which it was most exciting was a kind of rethinking of psychoanalytic theory in the light of queer temporality that really introduced temporality centrally into the theorization of the phallus. The centrality of psychoanalysis to the theorizing of this book makes me feel out of joint with the times in the space in which I operate, makes me feel anachronistic, makes me feel maybe old fashioned. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's a kind of a, an intellectual aging problem, which is that I've been writing and theorizing for long enough that I've gone through several different intellectual fashions. And, you know, they stay with me, just like old clothes I have in my closet, you know, Lacanian thought always stays with me because it was formative of who I was as a thinker. But it also feels like if I go out wearing that, people will say, what? So I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but I think that's my answer. <laughs> Jane, I want to give you a different perspective on this since Anne and I, <laughs> we both have a feeling actually precisely within North American literature The psychoanalysis is coming in specifically through queer writing and specifically through the form of auto theory. So we were thinking about Nelson's The Argonauts or Bechdel's Are You My Mother? And we also found that there was such a strong connection to your work because of anecdotal theory. So I'll just uh, tell our listeners for a minute that you also have a brilliant way of writing that combines the personal with the theoretical and that in this recent book, you start with a beautifully... crafted short fictions that are autobiographical and then you go on to analyzing them. So I was wondering first what you think of this term auto theory does that echo with you at all and also do you feel like there is something psychoanalytic in that form of theorizing from the personal? Okay, yes, I definitely now retroactively understand that the work I've been doing for several books, is what is people are calling auto theory. I would go back to not just anecdotal theory, but to feminist accused of sexual harassment and to living with his camera, which is also auto theory. And in fact, I actually only recently, meaning in the last year or two, kind of encountered or, or was a really aware of the word auto theory. And I encountered it because there was a special issue of a journal on auto theory that includes a reading of my living with his camera With Chris Krause's I Love Dick, which is kind of like crazy, wonderful, brilliant reading. And so then I, I thought, oh, yeah, right. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, so I gave it the name anecdotal theory, which made sense to me. And I'm, I'm happy with that. But I think that what I'm describing as anecdotal theory is also what many other people are describing now as auto theory. But this was, that didn't exist really when I wrote anecdotal theories. But I have to say, so I just directed an independent study with a doctoral student on auto theory because he's very interested in auto theory. And he wanted to do that. And I said, okay, well, let's do this because I kind of wanted to find out what was in it. And we ended by reading this brand new book by Lauren Fournier, which is kind of the first book on auto theory. And she barely talks about psychoanalysis. Psycho okay, so this is a North American book. She, she does talk about Erie Garai, but she mainly talks about Erie Garai as a kind of rebellious 
feminist rather than a psychoanalytic theorist. So I think that that gives me the sense of still what the, what the kind of mainstream feminist North American understanding of auto theory is. Yeah, we know there's psychoanalysis there, but that's not what we're excited about or interested in. I'll just give you a brief note that in the, at least the recent ACLA, there was a big panel on psychoanalysis and auto theory, also talking about your work. Oh, I'm so happy to hear this. This is a, this is a great surprise to me. This is just good news. <laughs> Absolutely. So that's, you know, coming from the back door. But there was also talk about the fact that auto theory in form has something psychoanalytic and not only feminist about it. And I was wondering if you have the same sense of this form rather than the content of it. I do. In the book, Anecdotal Theory, when I tried to explain what I was doing and where it came from, I saw it as coming from feminism, but also from psychoanalysis. To my mind, you know, part of what I always loved about psychoanalysis is, is that it, it is a, it's a theory that comes out of the detail of story, what we call the case history, but also, you know, the stories as they unfold in psychoanalytic practice. But also, I mean, Freud was thinking about his own life and dreams and relationships. To start with the interpretation of dreams, that could be considered a, a work of auto theory. Psychoanalysis, post-structuralism, and feminism, those three things together formed me intellectually back in the 1970s, <laughs> which is sort of the moment of my formation. And to me, they all came together in a way that made what I call anecdotal theory, but one could also call auto theory, just makes sense and makes sense theoretically. One of the critiques of auto theory is, of course, that it is narcissistic or that it is overly obsessed with the self. On the other hand, I also get the sense that there is something also maybe more dangerous than just narcissism, which is why people are, are afraid of it. Could you say something more about these dangers? I mean, beyond uh, this, this rather superficial critique of narcissism or, or what is at stake here? Why people are so afraid of, of this form of theory? The first thing it makes me think of is Maggie Nelson's description of a, something that happened to me in the Argonauts. Throughout the interview, Jane was incredibly generous to let us come extremely near to the beating heart of vulnerability, as she does here in talking about the chafing critique that was directed at her by the art historian Rosalind Krauss in a 1998 graduate seminar, a scene depicted by Maggie Nelson in The Argonauts. And I've had a complicated relation to reading her description of that scene, which was one of the most painful events of my professional life, that scene. I mean, but, and... And Maggie Nelson is very, uh, I think she's very astute in her understanding of what had happened and what it means. And she's, you know, basically sides with me. I mean, I think she, she ends the scene by saying, I stand with Gallup. But one of the things she says, just almost as a side, is, well, everyone knows Jane Gallup is narcissistic. She says, Rosalind Krauss is known to be pugilistic and Gallup is known to be narcissistic. And narcissistic is just not a word anyone, I think, enjoys hearing describing them. And, and, it, and it was complicated because Nelson isn't saying she thinks I'm narcissistic. She's saying something broader, which is that, like, like this is what people think of me. This is kind of a well-known character, characterization. And she goes on to say that that's what people think of her as well, right? And her writing. Right. Well, and that's part of what her standing with me is. 
But as much as I am happy to have Megan Nelson stand with me and I'm happy to stand with her and I love her book and I love what she's doing there with auto theory, I also like, it's hard just kind of absorbing that. So I know that people think of auto theory as generally narcissistic. I know that that's there. It's part of the, the take and the reputation. And I've read responses to it and defenses to it, et cetera, which all, all makes sense. But I, I kind of want to start with the idea that, forget the theory for a moment, let me talk about the auto, which is that personally, that really stings. I'll also say that I think because talking about oneself is understood to be and is a narcissistic pleasure, you know, I've always tried as a writer to exercise as much rigor as possible around what I am saying, etc. And it, and for me, the question, and this is maybe why it's auto theory and not autobiography or memoir, etc. The question is always: Is what I'm saying theoretically productive? <laughs> Does it help us think? Not me think about my personal dilemma, right? But do I have material here that allows us, me, my readers, people trying to think, to figure more things out? There's language from the legal discourse on pornography. I think it's like socially redeeming value or something, but I, but I'm, for me, it's, it, I apply it always to the writing about myself, which is, which is, does it have theoretically redeeming value? And I do think it has to do with the fact that I think a lot of people have an investment in the objectivity of scholarly work or thought or theory or whatever, that that's what gives it value. The personal, emotional material in auto theory is, it just disqualifies it because of people's investment in the value of not just theory, but like scholarship. As much as there have been really important theoretically critique, theoretical critiques of objectivity, I don't think people have given up objectivity. And I think, you know, honestly, for me, those stances which have been those, those critiques of objectivity stances that have been around since the 60s and 70s, at least, that have been so important, have become in the, you know, in the last four years, in the United States, much more complicated because of the political attack on facts, science, etc. It's hard to kind of figure out how to locate what for me was a pretty comfortable, after many years, post-structural critique of the belief in facts and science when they've been under attack from a very dangerous place. So I don't know what that has to do with anything, but uh, it's what I think <laughs> of. Of course it does. <laughs> I think one of the things that we both love about your writing is that you're also invested in pedagogy from a theoretical a point of view. So I was wondering, this is a bit of a provocative question, if there is something that we can do with the queer temporality of the phallus in the realm of the classroom, how can we bring these things into the class? I think that I, I know how to do auto theory. I'm not sure I know how to do auto pedagogy. And for me, I, maybe it's also wrapped up in my history of being accused of sexual harassment because I was interested when I was younger in playing with some of those boundaries about distance and objectivity. And then that, that got pulled into a discourse 
which is the anti-sexual harassment discourse as it exists in the educational institution, and it's needing to protect itself from lawsuits. And the simple thing is like distance, no personal relations really with students because that's all kind of dangerous. I was accused of sexual harassment in the early 90s, which is to say 30 years ago. (laughs) And one of my responses was to write a book and try to think through this experience to theorize some about what are the theoretical issues because that's what I do and I wanted to benefit from it. But I think another effect was just becoming more and more cautious about my relations to students because there was a new discourse out there in which challenging boundaries was understood as just like illegal and dangerous. I don't think I know how to incorporate some of the really interesting things going on at the boundaries between the auto and the theory in my pedagogical practice. We were talking last week to Patricia Gerowitzi and she said that she felt that one of the biggest problems of psychoanalysis is that they just purged it of sexuality. The psychoanalysis that has lost this has also lost its importance. And, and I felt yeah, that, that I see this also in your work. Yeah, this return to the phallus and this return to the to the danger zone of psychoanalysis, that it's actually a theory that places sexuality at the heart of human subjectivity. Right. And which is why psychoanalysis was important to me and interesting to me. I mean, I think it's really the through line in my work, actually, <laughs> even when it's not explicitly psychoanalytic. It's, a, it's about using sexuality and the connection to sexuality as a way of posing really complicated questions with a kind of liveness. This notion of liveness is very interesting. It brings us into more like uh, British or object relation schools. Are you interested in, in this form or is your, or is your um, background really focused on, on Lacan? I think that for me, the really powerful psychoanalytic texts were Freud and Lacan, possibly because it was formative, possibly because I was also in French. That was the field that I was in. Uh, up until I would I would I almost said recently, but it's it's up until like 1985. I think that my psychoanalytic reading and formation is, is somehow arrested <laughs> for me in who I was and what I was before 1990, particularly before 1985, when what was really powerful for me was the way that French psychoanalytic theory seemed to call into question certain assumptions about psychoanalysis in the United States, the way that it existed, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. I recently wrote a piece on Roland Barthes. Last summer, I wrote a piece on the, on, on the pleasure of the text. Went back and revisited and tried to figure out why I loved that book so much. And one of the things that I figured out looking at it is, is that Barthes had this really unusual relation to psychoanalysis for a French intellectual in the 1970s, because psychoanalytic theory was so central and authoritative in the French intellectual scene in the 1970s. By that time, Kristeva had become a psychoanalyst. So feminist theory was basically psychoanalytic. Lacan was so central. It felt like everything was psychoanalysis. And this is also, of course, the period of time that was formative to me because that's when I was a graduate student in French. But Bout, 
he writes about psychoanalysis, but in this really informal, casual way, he takes what he wants from it and he does not worry about being orthodox about all of that in a way that was extremely unusual for a theorist in Paris in the 1970s. And as I was looking at that, I realized that I found that incredibly congenial. And it felt to me like I've always been interested in psychoanalysis as a way of thinking that disrupts certain suppositions one has about the self, about objectivity, about all of that, about sexuality. I've never been interested in the kind of institutional orthodox side of psychoanalysis, the part that gets connected to psychoanalytic institutions, which I've never really had any relation to. It certainly corresponds to the kind of relation that I feel like I have with psychoanalysis. You go back quite often to that moment in the 1990s that psychoanalysis is really you know, going out of fashion. And I was just wondering if you have your own hypothesis why this was the fate of psychoanalysis in the U.S. towards the end of the century. Is it Protestant? Is it feminist? Is it neo-capitalist? What is the thrust of that disappearance for you? I think that it's a good question. And I, I don't feel like I have the definitive answer. I think there's pieces of it. So one of the things that was happening in the 1990s in the U.S. intellectual climate was that whereas the 1980s were the kind of heyday of post-structuralism in the U.S. and people like doing that kind of thought, as, as we went, kind of went into the 90s, there was more and more desire to be political and possibly politically correct and to be moral or ethically correct. You see all of that. And so that, for example, people doing deconstruction, you know, they were horrified by demand and that scandal kind of burst as we're getting around 1990 and wanting to emphasize the ethical side of deconstruction. And I think there's also a lot of suspicion of European thought, the fear of connection to Eurocentrism, the move to both non-Euro-American thinkers in the United States and non-European thinkers in the world. So there was, there was a lot of that that became very important. So I'm not, I still don't know exactly why psychoanalysis went out, but it certainly went out at that moment. I would like to ask you one last question about your current work. Um, and I want to attach one small, uh, small side question to it. Can you also explain yeah, a little bit about the pleasure of writing, um, of different kind of writing for you? About a year ago, I was feeling very disappointed that the book did not get the kind of uptake that I had expected and really felt my response was, I'm not going to, it's so much hard work to write a book. I mean, that I'm just never going to write a book again. The other thing is, is that I'm, I'm retiring from teaching in about a year. I've decided to do that on the occasion of my 70th birthday, which is in a year. So I also knew that I needed to keep writing because what in the world would I do with my time if I wasn't teaching? So I'm now writing essays and I'm writing essays that don't involve a lot of new research but actually involve going back to things that I've thought at different points or to texts that have made me think and, and doing that. 
So I wrote an editor of a journal who I know asked me to write a, about a book that was really formative for me because they were doing a series on older or established scholars and books that were important to them. And so I decided I was going to write on Bouts, The Pleasure of the Text, and I wrote this essay. And I really enjoyed going back in and looking at this text and finding new things and thinking about it and thinking about its relation to my own intellectual trajectory. I just recently wrote a piece, I mean, really, like, just finished it last week. So wrote another essay on, on three books, one from Crypt Theory called Exile and Pride by Eli Clare, one Gloria Anzaldua's Borderlands La Frontera, and one Alice Walker's In Search of Our Mother's Garden, and on the, the, the idea of place there. And then the next thing I'm going to write, which I'm going to write to deliver at Louvain, is, a, is about thinking about the relation between temporality and identity, which I was doing at the end of my book, and connecting it to some things that uh, Eve Sedgwick says in the beginning of Epistemology of the Closet, in going back to the idea of, of like, well, there's two models of homosexuality. There's people who are it for their life and born that and people who change. And I want to talk about those two models as two different temporal models of identity, which we might want to apply apply much wider than just to sexual identity. I'm trying to maximize my pleasure in writing and minimize my anxiety. I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I've worked really hard and I'm ready to like take the enjoyable part of my work and get rid of the part that was just, it's just too hard. Thank you so much, Jane, for being with us. Well, this, this all makes me very happy and I'm really glad we did this. <laughs> Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us this episode on Psychoanalytic Literature. Make sure to subscribe to the show in Spotify, Radio Public, or any of your favorite apps. Thank you to Buzi Raviv for editing this podcast and to Ben Gurion University for making it happen. Tune in next time for another thrilling interview. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Tot de volgende keer. Until next time.